0: On Earth Day, we're going to talk about water and ice.
1: The ice sheets of the Earth, Greenland and Antarctica, um, are sort of two of the biggest uncertainties in uh, future climate projections.
0: Hi, I'm Jim Green, and this is Gravity Assist, NASA's interplanetary talk show. We're going to explore the inside workings of NASA and meet fascinating people who make space missions happen. Here with Katherine Walker, and she is a management fellow at NASA headquarters and a visiting scientist at the Goddard Space Flight Center. Catherine has done fantastic research looking at the oceans and ice on Earth, as well as other planetary bodies. Welcome, Catherine, to Gravity Assist. Thanks. It's
1: very exciting to be here. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, I'm really delighted to talk to you about, you know, one of my favorite topics, which is water in whatever form we can get it in. And indeed, uh, you've gotten interested in studying oceans and glaciers. Uh, How did that happen?
1: Early in my life, we lived near the beach. um, And so we saw the ocean all the time. Um, and I was sort of just captured by its um, power because it, um, living right on the coast, you get a lot of storm damage and things like that. And you, other days you'd look and it's flat calm, and so it's just sort of this dynamic um, system that you can see moving and and doing things in, on the Earth um, on really short timescales. And so you know on a human level, you just want to understand that. Um, early on in my career, though, I was a geologist, and <laughs> eventually that turned into looking at planetary surfaces. Um, things like Mars and the moon, um, early in my undergrad career. Um, and then eventually there was a newspaper article about, um, uh, Cassini had seen Enceladus and I learned that there were these planets that were made entirely of ice, um, which, you know, in some, in some, uh, sort of thought process that is similar to rock uh, when it's that far out in the solar system. And so, um, I ended up looking at, at ice, um, on planetary scales, and then coming back down to Earth and saying, hey, what does it do here on Earth? Um, and so I sort of did a roundabout way of becoming a glaciologist.
0: Well, when you go out in the field, you've been uh, actually uh, looking at glaciers. Uh, what are you trying to do when you go out and, you know, explore?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I guess there's multiple answers. The first, first and sort of foremost, when we go out to look at glaciers, in my research anyway, um, we're looking for how right at that point where the ocean and ice meet. Um, So these are called marine terminating glaciers. Um, These exist in Greenland, they exist in Alaska, um, and obviously in Antarctica, which is surrounded by the ocean. Um, And so we look at how the ocean and ice uh, sort of interactions happen over time um, and how the warming ocean, since that's the sort of uh, big sink of heat here on Earth, um, how that changes and how that then affects our ice caps um, and ice sheets on the Earth. Um, and so we go out there and measure um how the ice has is shrinking mostly, um sometimes growing. Um, but usually using airborne science and satellites, um, and then some you know, ground measurements that we go out and measure things like radar, um, measurements of thickness and things like that. Um another answer though is we use Earth's ice sheets to better understand um ice on other planets and how it interacts with oceans or water there. Um and so a lot of the times we go out with the intention of sort of measuring these things, um, not just uh, for the processes here on Earth, but trying to understand um, the physics of it so we can sort of take that knowledge and move it to other planets.
0: Didn't we just have a big glacial disconnection uh, where a big ice sheet was broken off and that and that's because it just got thinner and thinner and broke off? What do we know about that? And how large was that uh, glacier that broke apart?
1: Yeah the Conger ice shelf, which was in East Antarctica, um, completely collapsed, which um, is not totally unprecedented. Um, There have been a few ice shelf collapses in West Antarctica, um, which is generally thought of as the warmer part of Antarctica. It's sort of hard to think about um, Antarctica being warm at all. Um, (laughs) But the Western side (laughs) is generally what we think about when we think about these melting glaciers um, uh, and ice sheets that we we hear about in the news. Um, East Antarctica, on the other hand, um, scientists generally think of um, as relatively stable. We sort of have that as our um, bank of, of freshwater ice um, on the earth. Um, it's very cold. It's very slow. It's like the definition of glacial pace over there um, doesn't really do much. Um, and so we were sort of thinking that of that place as stable. Um, but yeah, a, few, a couple weeks ago, um, a small ice shelf called Conger Ice Shelf, um, it was about 1,200 square kilometers um, in area, um, we were watching it over um a few months now, but now that we have now that we know it collapsed, we can use that satellite record to look backwards in time and see what it was doing um over time. And we could see that it was just getting thinner and thinner um as the ocean warmed it. Um and eventually um an, something called an atmospheric river uh arrived in Antarctica um in early March. And what an atmospheric river is, it's a big weather event that sort of brings in heat and moisture. Uh, from the tropics which is um, not unprecedented but very rare um, in Antarctica and you get these temperatures and winds and waves that came in with this with this sort of low pressure event um, that turned it into this um, sort of too much to handle for this thinning ice shelf so it collapsed
0: wow well what happens to it then does it eventually completely uh, get consumed by the ocean that it uh, swims in and and then and then the ocean rises
1: yeah, so the ice shelf, as it broke up, it made a few big icebergs that are now floating off into the uh, Southern Ocean, and they'll they'll go on to melt probably within a few months or a year, um, you know, sort of trailing fresh water um, and changing the nutrient amounts for, for ecosystems down there um, as they go. Um, the other sort of, I guess, concern that we have is now that that ice shelf has come away from the coast, there's nothing holding back the glaciers behind it. Um, And that's usually what we worry about when we talk about sea level rise. Um, When these ice shelves around the edges of the continent collapse, they can release all this ice uphill um, to slide more quickly into the ocean. And that's what will cause um, sea level rise.
0: Wow. Well, how does your research fit into the bigger picture of climate change?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So the ice sheets of the Earth, Greenland and Antarctica, Um, are sort of two of the biggest uncertainties in uh, future climate projections and in particular projections for sea level rise, timing and volume, I guess. And so when we think about how, you know, studying ice and ocean interactions, how those inform on future climate predictions, we usually think about how those will affect sea level um, as we know it. And one of the biggest unknowns um, right now, anyway, in glacier science is Um, how quickly something can collapse, which seems like a big, fairly easy question to answer. Like, you know, um, if you look at the cliffs of Dover, for example, um, why aren't those collapsing? How are they holding themselves up? Um, You know, it's not a miracle. That sort of material, rocky material, (laughs) has a strength to it. It can hold itself up to a certain degree, and then you get these little um, calving off periods. Um, Same thing happens for ice. We just um, watch things like this recent Conger collapse, Conger ice shelf collapse. um, We use those events to study how strong ice is. um, And then we can study how quickly um, these retreats can happen and how, then how quickly sea level rise will happen. Um, So yeah, that's how those two sort of feed into our expectations for the future.
0: Well, I heard that you also had a robot in Antarctica. Uh, What were you doing down there and what was that project all about?
1: Yeah. So this is a nice tie into the sort of cross between Earth science and, and planetary science. Um, so when I was a postdoc uh, researcher at uh, Georgia Tech, I was working on a project looking at the ice-ocean interface. So when we think about these ice shelves in Antarctica, it's just this big slab of ice that's about, can be up to 100 meters thick. So we're talking substantial ice cover. Um, so you have this ocean underneath that is completely removed from um, sunlight or um, really any current activity or anything like that. It's just sort of this cavity underneath ice. And so we were down there trying to study what's happening right at that interface between the ocean and the the ice underneath and what sort of life lives under there. And so, you know, how else do you do that? But you send down a submersible vehicle. Unfortunately, people couldn't go in it, which would have been fun, but we couldn't go. It was just a little, um, basically a camera and um, some oceanographic instruments. Um, And we sent it down it sort of looked like a torpedo, um, and we sent it down through a, a hole in the ice um, and swam around down there. I and mean, it was really neat because um, as, I guess as a, as a glaciologist or an ice person, I was sort of just there to see what the shape of the ice looked like and what, how much was melting and things like that. But once we got to the seafloor, we could actually see these, um, you know, anemones and um, starfish and like something I thought was a lobster, but it was just a giant shrimp. It was it was really cool. And, you know, just thinking of how these things uh, live down there with no sunlight and no, you know, no nutrient source or anything like that was was sort of super cool to see. Um, just sort of proved the, the point of like you never know what you're going to find when you go exploring.
0: That's right. And you always have to look. So, yeah. So these interfaces between the ice and the water uh, are really important and and I'm just delighted um that uh, you you were continuing to find life in those interfaces because the earth is not the only planet that has those kind of interfaces but before we talk about things out in the solar system I want to ask you about some memorable stories that you may have had in the Antarctic sure
1: uh so one of the most memorable things uh that happened to me when I was there um so Maybe this is, uh, you know, not clear to anyone who hasn't been there, maybe. And I didn't know this before I got there, but um, so GPS doesn't work near the poles uh, just because it sort of searches and searches for north or south, but can't find it. So you can't use that to figure out where you are. Um, And since we had this uh, robot underneath the ice, we also couldn't visually see it because it's covered, you know, there's ice, but then there's lots of snow on top of it. So you can't see through the ice or anything. Um, And so to figure out where the robot was below us when we were standing on top of the ice, um, we had these giant uh, magnetic rings that we had to hold um, and wear earphones. Um, And when the magnetic pinger on the robot was below us, it would make a buzz in our our ears. And so we were sort of wandering around this great big area on the ice, hoping to hear a ping to figure out where the robot was. And I saw this sort of hill and I was like, oh, I'm going to go that way. And so I started walking up, and I knew from my experience in my uh, PhD that usually those hills meant that this was the transition between sea ice and an ice shelf. It's just windblown snow that's sort of making that transition. So sea ice um, is uh, not permanent ice. It's it's frozen out of the ocean in the winter. And so that's what I had been walking on, and I was like, I'm going to go up onto the ice shelf, which is where we thought the robot was underneath. And so, knowing my <laughs> significant experience looking at satellite images of the area, um, I said, "Oh, I didn't realize they were attached to each other, um, the sea ice and the, and the ice shelf. But in my eye at the time, I was like, "No, it looks connected. I'm going to walk up this hill." Um, and so I walked up and suddenly I dropped uh, up to my armpits basically into the snow, and, and I had to hoist myself out and I grabbed the, the magnetic ring. and I was like, "Oh my God, what happened?" And I looked back down to where I'd popped out of. Um and there was this giant opening and it was basically it wasn't connected. I was right from my <laughs> satellite um experience. Um there was about a, a 20 meter drop down into the ocean um from there and so survived that. <laughs> um but that teaches you to trust your intuition and not your visual sight.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah that could have been dangerous. Yep. I'm so glad you survived that indeed. <laughs> So, as our ice sheets begin to melt and that's going to continue to happen uh is there a process for which they can come back?
1: That's a great question, and one that sort of goes to our hope for the for the future right because we hear a lot of um news reports and things that say, "Hey, you know, expect the worst um another ice sheet or an ice- another ice shelf has collapsed um oh no um which it is sad to watch um <laughs> them collapse of course and and there is a large amount of um Evidence that uh, the ice on Earth is shrinking, um, of course, but uh, one of the things that we don't know, aside from some of the stuff I talked about before, about how it's holding itself together, we also don't know, um, you know, as more um, ice melts into the ocean, we don't know how all that fresh water getting added to the system um, will change the ocean currents in the ocean system as well. And so most of what we think about um, in terms of how we expect things to change in in the future, Um, is set up based on how things work now. Um, But we don't exactly know, you know, if you add a whole bunch of, you know, say if all of West Antarctica disintegrated, which hopefully it doesn't, but um, even if it all did, uh, you know, what would that actually do to the ocean? And it might even stop itself. It might change current systems and things like that. Um, to tr- either slow or stop the uh, process from continuing um, and so we don't know a lot of those natural feedbacks that might actually kick in um, to help you know uh, reverse the the process um, there are also you know a lot of um, i guess geoengineering ideas about how to um, sort of enhance the albedo of the earth and reflect more sunlight back up um, you know the earth has a natural process in sea ice uh, formation that does that already but if we can sort of prop up that process and Cool things down, maybe um, there are a lot of ideas like that circulating as well so it's not all it's not all bad news
0: well, your experience on Earth about oceans and ice and we're finding those kind of objects out in the solar system uh, what are the top icy moons that you're interested in when you when you think about these uh, these wonderful phenomena
1: Well, the first one that comes to mind of course is Europa it's sort of this perfect or seemingly perfect laboratory for life to maybe evolve. If it's there, um, it's got a liquid ocean underneath a nearly pure water ice, um, ice shell. Um, we can see in the cracks, um, on, on the surface that there's a lot of salts and things that you might expect from an ocean very similar to ours. Um, so that one's, uh, sort of a, um, pretty obvious one. Um, there's also Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn, (laughs) um, which also likely has a, um, well, it at least has a south polar ocean, if not a global ocean. Um, also pure water ice, um, ice shell. Um, and there's other ones, I guess, like, uh, you know, Ganymede or Callisto, which are older. Um, well, and Ganymede's much larger. But a lot of these places that maybe people don't think about all the time, but I think it's hard for us to imagine a an ocean below any sort of solid crust. But there's a lot of these places, uh, a lot of these icy moons out there that um, you know, look very solid to us and are expected to be solid because they're sitting out in the middle of a, you know, way below freezing uh, solar system. But they actually have a lot of water. Um, and, you know, comparatively, Earth is pretty dry compared to some of these places. So it's exciting.
0: It sounds to me like our new view of the solar system is that the solar system is a soggy place. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. <laughs> well, what projects are you currently working on now? So a
1: few things, I guess, um, out in the solar system, we're working on a, a project to try to look at how um, life might have evolved in uh, Europa's ocean, um, looking at sort of how You might expect things to evolve with the lack of sunlight, which is usually what we think of here on Earth. We think of, oh, you need photosynthesis and sunlight and uh, water to survive. And obviously they have enough water um, on Europa, but um, none of those other things um, and a lot of radiation, uh, which we don't have here on Earth. And so we have to sort of rethink um, how we think about how life forms and how it uh, maintains itself. Um, So we're looking at that. Um, Another project I'm working on is looking at that Conger ice shelf that we were talking about earlier, how that um, is going to affect that particular region of Antarctica in the near term and long term. And another project, I guess, that I'm working on um, now is just looking at how to better, I guess, observe high mountain regions. So the ICESat spacecraft, it's a really great spacecraft to look at flat things, which is good for ice sheets, for example. Um, but it doesn't do so well on things that are highly sloped, for example, like mountain regions or um, uh, quickly changing glaciers. So at the edges of the ice sheet, you get these places that are highly cracked and are moving really quickly. And unfortunately, ICET, um doesn't do as well there. So we're looking at designing new technologies to, to try to figure out how to do that
0: better. In thinking about the possibility of life, underneath the icy crust of Europa, how could they possibly survive? And what would they look like? That's a great
1: question. And, I, and I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of answers. But one of the things we can think about on Earth um, is that, you know, a few decades ago, um, I think the general idea of life on Earth was uh, you need sunlight, you need uh, water, um, and you need a certain number of nutrients. But, you know, over, over the last few decades, even this is new um, sort of science, you know, we know now, um, things called extremophiles have been found, things that live in, the, you know, some of the hottest places at the bottom of the ocean at those uh, vents, those sort of mid-Atlantic ridge vents. Um, never would have thought of that before, you know, a few decades ago that that would be a place that anybody would like to live. Um, but, you know, we found organisms that uh, not not only don't need sunlight, but then they can also live at these high, high heat places in the darkness, um, and things like that. And we also found underneath the ice sheets on Earth, um, you know, we've drilled a really deep hole in the ice in the middle of the ice sheet uh, in Antarctica. You know, twelve hundred meters down, found a pocket of water, and there was a literally a shrimp, um, in there living, um, you know, no sunlight, no um nothing that we think of as as nutrients, but he was living down there, probably with a family. Um and so there's these sources of, of energy um and things that we don't we still don't know all about. And so um, you know, I imagine at Europa there's uh, very similar um sort of resourceful organisms that can figure out how to survive and how to um sort of turn that any energy they can get into something they can live on.
0: Yeah, that would be fantastic if we could find life in uh, the ocean of Europa. It would tell us that, that life is a pretty universal thing and perhaps all over our galaxy. Well, Catherine, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was the person, place, or event that has gotten them so excited about being the scientists they are today. And I call that event a gravity assist. So Catherine, what was your gravity assist?
1: So I have, I guess I have a twofold gravity assist. I think I like to think of it as maybe my exit from low Earth orbit, and then the next one was a you know slingshot around the moon or something like that. So the first one that I can think of that sort of got me into uh, getting interested in being a scientist was this is going to sound silly, but uh, I saw the movie Apollo thirteen when I was uh, about ten years old. I told my parents I said I'm going to be an astronaut, which is basically uh, the same as most ten year olds probably, and then unlike Most other folks, I think, I'd never let that go. As I continued through my career, I said, oh, you know, I liked the ocean. I liked geology. And I said, hey, those things would actually help me be an astronaut someday. Um, And so I never gave that up. Later in my career, once I was getting through college and things like that, um, I got an internship at the University of New Hampshire with a scientist named uh, Antoinette Galvin, and she was the PI on the um, one of the instruments on the stereo mission. Um, and I got a summer internship there. I was excited. It was close to home. And it was exciting because it was an actual mission at NASA. And I was, you know, finally working on a NASA thing. Um, and she um, was very kind to me. I had never had any um, sort of spacecraft experience before. So, you know, it was perfectly reasonable if she was sort of like, hey, do this summer project and then you're done. Um, but she, you know, she was super helpful and encouraging. Um, and she kept me on after the summer. She said, would you like to keep working with us? We'd love to, you know, have you on the team. Um, and she was just one of those people that didn't have to be that nice, but she was. And she was interested, I guess, in, you know, sort of paying it forward in the in the field. Um, and so that really got me started at NASA um, and got me even more excited about being involved in stuff like this. So, Um, Yeah, she's she's the person that sort of pushed me forward.
0: That's fantastic. Well, Catherine, thanks so much for joining me and talking about a fantastic look at water, not only as liquid, but as ice.
1: You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look under the hood at NASA and see how we do what we do. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.